Harper Academic Calling Morgan Jerkins Between 1916 and 1970, six million black Americans left their rural homes in the South for jobs in cities in the North, West, and Midwest in a movement known as the Great Migration. But while this event transformed the complexion of America and provided black people with new economic opportunities, it also disconnected them from their roots, their land, and their sense of identity. Morgan returns to our podcast series to talk about her most recent book, Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots, which is her fascinating and deeply personal exploration, where Morgan recreates her ancestors' journeys across America, following the migratory routes they took from Georgia and South Carolina to Louisiana, Oklahoma, and California. Wandering in Strange Lands is available now in hardcover, ebook, and digital audio from Harper Books. Today on our podcast, we have back with us for her second Harper Academic Calling interview, we have New York Times bestselling author Morgan Jerkins here to talk about her latest book, Wandering in Strange Lands. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. It's good. To, it's good. To, always good to chat with you. Always good to chat with you. Likewise. So I know that you got your idea for Wandering in Strange Lands from the film Get Out. And so I was wondering if you could start out by talking to us a little bit about how you got, how and why you got the idea that way. And then a bit about your, what your research process for this book was like, because you did both archival research and you traveled and did interviews and got some oral history or for it. So I was hoping that you could talk to us a bit about both of those things. Yes. So I know it sounds bizarre, like get out. Why get out? That's a horror movie. But what happened was when I was watching it, there's a climactic scene in the movie for any of you've seen it where the black male protagonist has his hands wrapped around his white girlfriend's throat. She has been she and her family have been trying to basically take his his body for the entirety of the film. And right when you feel like justice is about to happen or he's about to get away, a police car pulls up and I was sitting in Magic Johnson Theater in Harlem. And everyone just collectively gasped. And that astounded me because it's one thing to talk amongst your friends about state violence and displacement. It's another to be in a huge theater like that. And and just everyone has the same reaction. And it got me to thinking about intergenerational fear and trauma amongst Black Americans because we all weren't native to Harlem. I'm sure I'm not. So I wanted to write about that initially. In fact, my book proposal was on that and I can't even look at it now because when I look at it, I'm like, oh man, the fact that they took a chance on it, it was just a, a big suit. And when I spoke to two scholars about it, their names are Dr. Carrie Greenidge, Caitlin Greenidge's sister, and Dr. Kendra Field. When I told them about the premise, they were like, oh, this is a migratory story. Um, this is about migration. And I had already been interviewing people. I had already been interviewing and traveling to try to talk about this fear. And it wasn't coming together because I wasn't looking at the elements that sparked these fears to begin with, both on a micro and macro level. And the first couple of drafts were just icky, as best as I can say. It wasn't coming together. I did not bring my personal side into it until... After two full drafts, my editors brought me in with my agent. Like I come to Jesus one was like, okay, we need to regroup here. And I don't know. I think, you know, because it's an academic podcast, it was like, 
I was so afraid on many different levels because I was so personal in my first book. Mm -hmm. And this book combines like ethnography, cultural anthropology, sociology, and history. And I'm not formally trained in those areas. So I tried so hard to act as a distant observer and to talk about these communities and do meditations and all of that. And I was afraid to be more subjective, even though thanks to those like Zora Neale Hurston, I knew that I could be and still have an authoritative and journalistic stance. So it wasn't until I actually brought my family in and talk about these migrations and the overlapping yet distinctive forces that we have to deal with in this country that the book really started to take shape. And you say kind of early on in the book, you talk about all of the, you sort of take a step back and you assess all the traveling that you did um, and you're leaving and then you're returned to New York City. You are very declarative in, in saying that you are a black and Creole woman, a descendant of slave, slave owners and free people of color. And that you, that was something that you needed to say for yourself as much as anybody else, you know, who would be your kind of imagined reader for this book. So in what ways was this a project of self-discovery for you since, you know, a personal element, a memoir element wasn't necessarily kind of forefront in your mind when conceiving of this project? Well, I think that once I decided to bring my family and I realized I didn't know much about my family in a sense that we did things just because we did them Mm -hmm. or because black people did them. Mm -hmm. And it made me often think just as much as tradition is is so revered so and upheld fear can be the same way but it's extracted from the source and i wanted to understand why that was because when i spoke to other northern families black northern families they said the same thing like i i know my family's moved but i don't know where they're from in the south or i or they're from the south but they didn't go back or we don't know what happened to the land that they were on um and so once i started bringing in my family history and taking into account the folklore that has persisted throughout the generations um taking into account like the tradition that we had but we didn't really have an origin for it um that's when i started to realize okay now i understood why i was taking this trip and i knew that intuitively as i was traveling and speaking to people from the south and the midwest and the west and realizing that they just were, they were in dialogue with me, even in the midst of me interviewing them. Mm-hmm. But when I started to bring in my family narratives, then I started to realize, okay, now I can really construct where all these transcripts are going to fit in the book itself, because now I have these inquiries and I can start each chapters with these investigative questions and then start to find the structure there. So it was definitely a healing part of the journey. It was definitely healing, especially for Louisiana, because uh, that's from my father's side. And my father, when I, after This Will Be My Undoing was published, and because of the acclaim that it got, he kind of was a little hurt because he was like, you know, he saw that my mother was talked about a lot in the book, but he wasn't. And I didn't have the guts to tell him that I didn't have this. I, I didn't know how to go there. I didn't know how to 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 attack it, um, for lack of a better phrase, because my father's spine has been such an enigma to me. And I wasn't as confident in my father's family tree, because by the time I was conceived, his relationship with my mom was already over. Mm-hmm. And when I was seven or eight years old, so I started the prologue, he already had another family. Mm-hmm. And so going to Louisiana and being recognized by people there, even though I'm generations removed from that soil, it was so healing. And clarified for me. And that's how I realized that this whole book was a pilgrimage for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so your the book tells, obviously, your personal story and connects your family story to this wider story of Black Americans and their migratory patterns in the United States during and following the Great Migration. Why do you think it's important to show other 
Black Americans, how these histories and lived experiences intersect, and what are some of the pieces of this story that you would like and hope that white readers especially take away from this book? Those are great questions. So I think on an educational level, now I'm going to speak for myself because mm-hmm. I, I grew up in a public school system, but even now, my book has not even been out two weeks, but I, I've been hearing on Twitter, on Instagram, through my own text, personal text, from Black people that are like, I didn't know this history. Like, for example, with me, the way that Black history was taught was very streamlined for me. It was your people were captured on or near the coast of Western uh, Africa. They were brought over via the transatlantic slave trade to the colonies. Slavery happened. Then emancipation, the reconstruction. Then um, uh, the Harlem Renaissance and the Civil Rights Movement and then Obama. These different markers. And there was so much that I didn't know that it almost filled me with shame a bit, actually, um, throughout the right throughout the traveling and the writing part of it. Because, for example, I didn't know that there were free black people or free people of color prior to Lincoln. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that there were black slave owners, in fact, thousands of them um, prior, you know, that participated in the plantation economy. I didn't yeah. know that, for example, when former President Andrew Jackson forced the five civilized tribes, which were the Cher- Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole that were originated in the South, when he forced them west of the Mississippi into Indian territory known as Oklahoma, Black people, either enslaved by the tribes or associated with them, accompanied them on that journey. That was never taught to me any, any, in any of my textbooks. I never even knew that Creole was a distinct group prior to Louisiana becoming part of the United States. I didn't know all about the sub-ethnic groups of African-Americans. I didn't know about their intersections with indigeneity or French people or Spaniards or just the many migrations aside from the Great Migration. Um, and it becomes very nuanced because it, it, it complicates what we think of American blackness, that yes, black people are not a monolith. We say that, but on this American landscape, when you actually see these different communities and regions, it takes on a whole new dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think about it with, with regards on, a, on an emotional level, I know for a fact that there are black American families who have heard stories about their origins, but they don't have the documentation or their DNA says otherwise. And what I hope is that this book will serve as a spark of hope, perhaps, that it's okay to plunge further, it's okay to question, and to not take DNA or documentation as the end-all be-all, because as I've explained in the book, that oftentimes our oral history collides um, with those two others, and that doesn't mean that we should downplay oral history, when, when a lot of times throughout Black American history, that was all we had. And as far as for white people, I think, you know, I didn't expect my book to come out at this time. My book was supposed to come out May mm-hmm. and then the pandemic happened yeah. and my editors were like, would it, would, it be, would it be okay if we can push it to August? And I was like, please, because I was still trying to emotionally process the lockdown um, as someone who lives alone in the city. And then I thought, okay, ooh, August, maybe it's a travel type of book. It's perfect. Then the protests happen. Mm-hmm. And I think for so many Americans, black, white, and other races and ethnicities, like, why does this thing keep happening? Why is it cyclical? And it's interesting because in the book, the way I end it, one of the last chapters I had is I'm at the intersection of Florence and Normandy, which is the start of the 92 riots. I was with there with an underground rapper who witnessed them. And I asked them, I said, do you think it's going to happen again? I had already spent days interviewing people who witnessed the 92 
riots and also witnessed the 65 riots. They were less than 30 years apart from each other. And he told me, and I'm paraphrasing, that if we, if this country doesn't reckon with what it has done to black people, it will happen again. So two years to that time that he said that, George Floyd protests happened. And so I want white people to read this and see that the past and present often collapse when we're talking about black American people and their communities and that we, I hope that this book is just one document that can serve, that can help to assess the devastation that has been brought upon us then and now. And that people like those that I spoke about in my book are still fighting in the face of so much massive state violence, land displacement and cultural erasure. So I hope that we can stop this cycle and I hope that this book can help to, you know, put a dam in that, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And that that devastation and the scale and scope of the devastation of what is happening to, you know, the, the physical presence of black communities um, or their absence and even just other sort of cultural markers or the cultural markers that, that, that do exist in what were historically black communities that tell a much different story on a, on a blue marker than perhaps actually happened. The sanitization of it was something that really struck me when I was reading your book and watching you travel around, especially when you got to South Carolina um, and, oh, yeah. and, and the cemeteries. So how do you think communities can more responsibly tell the stories of their place, especially when their history, the history of that place, the history of that land might not be the most palatable. Well, that's the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Is that oftentimes when we think of palatability, it's supposed to serve mainstream, parentheses, white and parentheses interests. And so that's the issue. It's like, when we think of who is this going to serve, what is at the expense of that? What is to the detriment of X, Y, and Z? And so, for example, plantation tours, Mm -hmm. you know, There should be historical markers on every plantation that tells you about the people who sacrificed their lives and their bodies involuntarily for the grandeur of these estates. You want to have your wedding there? What do you need to learn about what happened prior to you saying I do, you know, on on this soil, right? Um, I think about with regards to, you know, Hilton Head, where I talk about the massive land loss, or in some cases, people would argue land theft of Gullah Geechee land. There needs to be more protective measures for those who replicated this tradition called heirs property, which they pass down land, which is a form of intergenerational wealth, but it's without wills. Um, For example, we need to think about punitive taxes that heavily affect black southern communities where they can't you can't they can't tax you know they can't pay for it and then it goes up for auction and who gets auction wealthy white people or property developers um i think about for example when i went to hilton head how plantations gated communities there are called plantations and it's that romanticized nostalgia this romanticized white supremacist nostalgia that is all across the South. And I think about that's a way to to not make it palatable, make it real and make it properly contextualized. And I think that is, these are some of the ways that it can start is to protect these people, protect their communities and to properly contextualize what happens for locals, vacationers alike, alike. So one of the threads of your book that is a uniting sort of narrative is the idea of fear, as you talked about Mm -hmm. earlier. Was there a particular fear that you were 
saying afraid to write about sounds a bit too a bit too on the on That's the nose. That one it is. But is but was there one that you that you thought about and you were like, I know that I should write about this, but I'm also I also part of me really just doesn't want to go there. Yes. I'll say it li- like going there literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Figuratively, I'll say in terms of my writing, I was afraid to write the Louisiana section. Okay. Um, because to talk about black people who were slave owners, to talk about the potential relations between an enslaved black woman and a, a French merchant that may or may not have been consensual, according to their descendants, is very hot territory and i you know kim i'm I'm on internet like you see me on there i'm but i'm also millennial and i'm also a black woman and i've seen and i've mentioned this you know in other interviews but i've seen the way like my work or other people's work will be taken out of context and just mangled and maimed you know what i'm saying just for whatever reason for clicks retweets likes humiliation of the person who wrote it and i was afraid to talk about it because i was like oh my god i'm gonna get so much crap for this because it's uncomfortable even in black circles but i said to myself if i try to obfuscate this if i try to sanitize this portrait then it's counterproductive then why am i even taking this journey in the first place Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying it's going to make it that much harder for someone else or perhaps the children i'd like to have to try to find their own family members and as far as going there specifically oklahoma i mean i'm still processing how in the world that i do that Mm -hmm. i was with a woman her name is lietta osborne sampson and she's a seminal freedman. Freedman is a categorization within the five civilized tribes for those who are have are black, um, and and they don't have a blood quantum, which means that they full blood, half blood, indigenous blood. When prior to you know this laws rules, it, it, there wasn't that categorization, but because of their blackness, they're being discriminated against. Lack of housing assistance, scholarship benefits, uh, medical care within the five civilized tribes. And when she picked me up for my Oklahoma City hotel, mind you, I, I was purposely told to, to be in distance between another woman's home because of how treacherous it was. We were driving to a protest and in front of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Seminole County, Oklahoma. And she was like, if you are my daughter, and her voice just tapered off. And I said, what? She's like, if you are my daughter, I'd be scared. And for me, you know, I had, I tell people this all the time, all I had was my purse, my recorder, my phone, and a prayer. I did not know at the time, it wasn't until I, I came back home, that I, that when I was driving to Broken Arrow or to Tulsa, I was driving past sundown towns. And I tried to treat myself like a teenager, getting to my hotel before the sun went down. And making sure that I was in my hotel room, not the hotel, the actual hotel room, and tell someone I was there. I took pictures. Anytime I went somewhere, I was taking pictures of, of my license plate, the car, everything. Um, but yeah, there was one part of that trip during Oklahoma where me and Lietta were being followed because of the stuff that she was showing me. In fact, she had her life had been threatened before. She had been threatened to be lynched, you know? And to this day, I wonder, like, if I would do it again, would I have a weapon? What I learned in self-defense, what I carry a gun. And a part of me is like, I probably would have. Because there's so many things that could have happened to me on that trip. The fact that a local said, I would, I would be scared of you and I was by myself. I have no idea to this day how nothing didn't happen to me out there. Well, we're certainly glad nothing did. 
You traveled to Georgia and South Carolina, then to Louisiana, across Mississippi to Oklahoma, and the last part of the journey, as you said earlier, was in California. And I'll ask a purposely broad question so you can limit this however you want, but what did you learn about place or being in a place from the various places that you went to? Well, I will just say this, like, I'm so used to movement, even within my own family. Like, my mother was always talking about, you got to keep moving, go to another place, get a bigger house and all that. But when I went to places like, for example, the low country where I've never been before, before, it's so palpable in terms of its history, in terms of unfinished business, well, however eerily you want to interpret that, um, the magic, but also just the ancestral presence was so thick in the air. It was like like thick, the thick as a muggy heat. Um, when I went to Louisiana, it definitely felt like there was like this dissonance with like blackness sometimes and creoleness and how to honor both but not erase the other. With Oklahoma, it was just completely foreign. I'd never been there. I don't know anybody that's I don't know anybody personally in my life that's from there, and it was just like being mindful of different territories. Like understanding that you have to deal with America, but also the reservations. In fact, when I was meeting with a multiracial Creek citizen that fought for freedmen's rights, he called me a Wajena, which means a child of Washington, because I'm an American and he's on Creek Reservation. I never heard that before, but there's a distinction, right? And even with law enforcement, you have the Oklahoma the Police Department and then you have the, the Light Horsemen, which is the Police Department of the Five Civilized Tribes. Then when I went to Los, Los Angeles, yeah. particularly, I knew about territories as it relates to like gang territory, but I didn't know how it related to redlining and spatial segregation that intensified when black people continued to migrate. I didn't know that there were sundown towns also in California. Basically, I didn't realize that this paradise that California is, and it is a beautiful state, but a lot of black people, when they migrated there, they realized that the problems that they left were breeding them in a different area code. And I think when it regards to place, there were, you know, there were obviously distinctions um, in terms of ethnic groups and tens, in terms of like just the history of the area code. But at the same time, just this i this this idea of just oppression and disenfranchisement, all these different ways to curtail African American movement or self autonomous living was similar from coast to coast. And one last question for you. There's a big thread in your book about tradition um, and the traditions that African-American communities have themselves to make belonging something that is more palpable and more tactile. Was there any particular tradition that when you started out, you were like, yeah, this one is all right, that you then ended up either really loving or really disliking in, in your in your journey? Oh, man, that's a really good question. No one's asked me that. I think the one that I started out with in the beginning, talking about food. And I love starting with people. Like, why did you start with food? I'm like, honestly, because when I think of like a Sunday dinner in an African-American household, it's very similar in many different places. I can find or soul food. Mm-hmm. I can find soul food in Sylvia's in Harlem. I can find soul food in Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles in Los Angeles. I can find soul food in Philly. You know what I mean? But there was one tradition within that where I was like, why is it that we eat collard greens for money and blackout peas for good luck on New Year's Day? Like, it's cool. I get the money part because, you know, green. But I'm like, but where did that come from? And then when I realized that that originated from 
the Low Country and originated from a sub-ethnic group called the Gullah Geechee people, which are one of the oldest, if not the oldest, sub-ethnic group of African Americans. And they are known particularly because they have retained so much West African cultural traditions because of the isolation of the rice plantations and the fact that they outnumbered their slave masters because of their their lack of susceptibility to the diseases down there. And also just because of the fact that it's, it is said that 80% of enslaved Africans that made their ways to the colonies crossed the Charleston, South Carolina dock. So we're all indebted to them. So when I think about that tradition, it just fills me with so much glee, um, for lack of a better word, because it's like, it's not only tying me to the low country to which I'm indebted, but it's tying me to, you know, Liberia, Sierra Leone, um, Ghana. And it, it and like I said in the book, it like it's connecting 300 years on a dinner plate. So that's that's really a great that was that's that's one of my proudest moments, I think, to be able to connect that and use it as the portal through which I was going to start my travels. That's awesome. Well, Morgan, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you.